Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for young audiences. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. I encourage you to listen to these next two episodes, especially parents. The reality is, it is an extremely maddening hell to live in this internal world where you're living this constant lie and everybody around you is telling you it's real, but you know inside how fake this is. And it becomes extremely depressing. So we finally stopped going to all the community events. We stopped being around anybody that knew the truth. So eventually the only people that knew were my family and my partner. I had cut every other friend out of my life pretty much. Eventually, I didn't want anyone knowing the truth. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Would you mind leaving us a review today? By leaving a review and rating, it helps others to find us, and this would be a huge help. Using your favorite podcast platform, go to our show and leave a rating along with a review. And perhaps next week, we will mention you on the show. As a child, she struggled with the desire to be a boy. As a young adult, she went to the extreme measures to physically change from a woman to a man. What she thought would bring her peace led to isolation and deep disappointment. You may have heard the term gender dysphoria. If you haven't, it is the psychological distress endured by a person because of a perceived mismatch between a person's biological sex and their gender identity. What causes gender dysphoria? And what lies behind the desire to be a different gender? How should Christians view gender? And how can we share the truth in love to those struggling with gender dysphoria. Today's Candid Conversation guest, Laura Perry, shares her story. She opens up about her path from being a transgender male to a transformed woman of God. Join me as Laura details the awe-inspiring and transformational power of our Lord Jesus Christ in her own life. Now, on to our Candid Conversation. Gender identity, transgender, have become a cultural flashpoint in recent years. The use of pronouns, competitive athletics, even in the Tokyo Olympic Games. Gender and trans issues are in the headlines. But what about the faith community? How should Christians think about these things? Today, my guest is Laura Perry. And she has a story to share with us. And so, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's an honor for us to uh, to have you with us. I wonder, Laura, if you could tell us a little bit of your story, lay that out for us, and then I'll sort of pepper in some questions uh, as we move along, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. And, you know, we were one of those families that we were at church every time the door was open and involved in all the little programs, and I went to Christian school. And so I heard about Jesus kind of 24-7, but I somehow just completely missed the boat on what it really meant to be saved, what it really meant to be a Christian, because I just never had that relationship with Christ. I never really surrendered my life and my heart to Him. I, I said the prayer, I was baptized, 
and I'd rededicated several more times throughout life, you know, but it was like, it was never very real to me. And I never really wanted God in it. I remember never wanting to do my quiet time, you know, things like that. So there was just a a lack of understanding, I think, of the gospel. I grew up in this Christian home was kind of very legalistic in a way from my mom. And and I I always struggled to tell this story because I love my mom so much and um, she's come so far. But um, she'll tell you in her own testimony that she was kind of a a legalistic Pharisee Mm. and she was doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes. But she was kind of on this performance treadmill for God always trying so hard in her own flesh to please God. And if I can just do more works and I really feel sorry for her now, she used to go to these pastors and she would just beg and cry and say, please help me. I just can't live this Christian life because she still had all this sin in her heart. And they Mm. would say, Francine, you just need to try harder. Wow. This was the whole mentality. Yeah. And so this kind of translated into one, I think one reason why I didn't understand what it really meant to to be a Christian and be saved, but also it was kind of the same way in our relationship. So she was always doing a lot for me, um, but we didn't have a great relationship. She didn't want me around a lot. She didn't ever do a lot with me. Hmm. And I don't blame her at all. Like I said, I, I've realized now her own brokenness that she had, and that was kind of all she knew, I think, yeah. was just doing works and being busy and all these things. What was it that caused her to push you away in some sense? You know, and I really don't even know other than I think uh, she had just, grown up in a home where it was like that a lot. I think her dad, um, he had been a, um, a foot soldier in the trenches in Okinawa, like on the front lines in world war two. And he'd seen the horrific things. Hmm. And I think when she was growing up, he was just busy all the time. And I never got to ask him this, but it's just in looking back, it's kind of my own conclusion I've come to that. I I think it was like, he was trying to work off the guilt because he was working three part-time jobs, but then he was also, um, she said about every spare minute he had, he would only sleep a few hours a night and almost every spare minute he had, he was doing some kind of mission work and she would go around with him and they were always doing something, but she said they were just busy all the time. Christian mission work. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. But you know, not really having a lot of time for the relationship. Mm. And so I think it's kind of all she knew. Wow. And so I think part of it too, um, I had an older sister and an older brother, and then she miscarried two boys between my brother and I. And so when I was young, she was always so much closer to my brother. Mm. And there was, you know, I think part of it was longing for those two boys. I don't know all the reasons, but uh, part of it was just personality maybe. But for whatever reason, she just didn't want me around a lot. Mm. And it was like, go away, just just get off me, just leave me alone, you know. Um, so anyways, like I said, I don't blame her. What happened was, though, I began to believe these lies and um, I began to believe that mom didn't love me as much. And I began to be very, very jealous of my brother because of the relationship they had. Mm. And I was close to my dad, but I wanted to be close with my mom. And so I just I began to, to try to get her attention, but it just seemed like it was never working. I think what happened is once I began to believe these things, I had, I began to let bitterness and resentment come into my heart. And I remember at times trying to like sort of work up more anger because like if maybe if I can show more emotions, show how upset I am, then yeah. she'll notice. And so I would like hold on to these emotions and try and get really worked up. And so I was getting very, very bitter and resentful. And I didn't realize until later, the Lord recently showed me this in the word mm-hmm. um, where it says that it's in Hebrews twelve fifteen through 16 that says, Looking diligently, lest any man fall short of the grace of God, 
lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person such as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And I see that in my life as I was getting more and more bitter, and it was just beginning to affect my relationship with her, and eventually it started affecting my relationship with God, and I was angry, and it began to affect all my other relationships. For example, I at school, I began to think that the girls were rejecting me, but I think it was my own awkwardness as I, I didn't know how to relate to the feminine because um, I, I didn't have much relationship with my sister old either. She was quite a bit older than me. Sure. So I spent all my time with my dad and my brother. And so I'd go to school and it was like, I couldn't relate to these girls. So I perceived it as rejection from them. Mm. And then I, I was molested when I was eight years old by another mm. boy and so there was so much confusion and I began to get very sexual and I just didn't know how to, to navigate life. You know, yeah. I had all these lies and I had this lens on that mom doesn't love me. And so everything that would happen in life sort of got put through this filter mm. and it would be, you know, little things would happen. It's like the enemy found ways to reinforce that. I'd be like, see, she doesn't love you. And so this just got reinforced more and more. And I started fantasizing about being a boy. Mm. I was wearing my brother's like hand-me-down clothes and stuff where I was playing with his toys. And it was like I was trying to be my brother, I think. And I would write stories a lot about me being a boy. All throughout life, had this fantasy of wanting to be a boy, but never knowing what to do about it. Because back then, nobody talked about transgenderism. I'd never heard the word. Right. So um, I kept sort of drifting through life with this confusion and getting more and more angry at God over the years. And then when I was 14, I found out that I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So Mm. I had cysts all over my ovaries, and I was in constant just chronic pain. And so they were telling me that I was likely never going to get pregnant. So it's like I had this body that I didn't want in the first place, and then you know it's causing me nothing but pain, and then I'm not even going to be able to get pregnant. And I was really, really angry. I started sleeping around and just having... Um, I was trying so hard to to fix the brokenness inside, and I was trying to find love in all the wrong ways. You know, yeah. my brother had gone off to college, dad was working a lot more, and I, I just, I felt so alone, and I kept trying to get the male attention, and the way to get that was by sleeping around, you know, mm-hmm. but I was just getting more and more fractured, and I finally had this um, one guy that I thought really loved me and we had this good relationship and we were planning to get married and then he dumped me and it was awful. And I just Mm -hmm. was so devastated and I was so angry. And after all this had sort of built up, I told God that I would never serve him again. And I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted, I remember thinking I want to sin in every way possible. I want to be the opposite of a Christian because I was just so angry. Mm. There were times in high school that I remember praying to Satan, asking Satan to keep people from coming to know Jesus because I was, I just hated him. And I knew I tried really hard to be an atheist. I I knew that the Bible was true. I knew that Jesus was real, but it was just this like head knowledge. I didn't know him. Yeah. But then uh, throughout college, I just got deeper and deeper into sexual sin. Into I started getting into pornography. Eventually I started acting out even more and more. And I finally thought, you know, the reason that this never works out, the reason I'm never happy is because I was supposed to be the man. If I was the man, you know, I know how to treat a woman. And I just had all these fantasies and all these romantic ideas about how I would treat a woman. So I started looking this up. I really didn't. It was just driving me crazy for a couple of months. I was like, every day I was just thinking, I have to do this. But I'd still never heard the word transgender. 
I'd mm. heard of like people cross-dressing. I'd heard of drag queens, but that was about right. it. And so I looked up in Google girl becoming a boy just to see what came up. And I was amazed at like thousands of results that come up, yeah. you know, and it's like, wow, there's people out there that feel like I do. Yeah. That's a big event, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's like, uh, you've gotten all the validation that you're looking for in that moment. Everything that right. you are striving to accomplish. Here are people that are saying, absolutely. I've been there and I know how you feel. Yeah. I tell people all the time, especially young people, um, I tell you, the devil will always find a way to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. And I mean, whatever you're feeling, he'll find a way to validate it, you know. Especially and, on the internet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that is one of the number one things I hear from so many parents that they're, they're young kids yes. and even people that, uh, that have detransitioned now. And they're, they'll say, you know, I had all these thoughts and these feelings, but I really didn't know what it was. And then I went on YouTube and YouTube, I found yeah. a video of yeah. somebody that said they were trans and they had all these you know, transition surgeries or whatever. And now their life is amazing, you know, and it's such a lie. I mean, you look at these people early on and yeah, they're really happy for the first couple of years. Cause it, it's like a drug that gets them out of the pain they're in. It's the honeymoon phase. Right. Exactly. But then years later, you don't ever hear from them. Yeah. In fact, there's one in particular that now this person claims to be intersex. As far as I know, she hadn't had any genetic testing, but regardless, she's had the same, transition surgeries so the process is still the same and she talks about how wonderful and how amazing it is and all of this and i mean all these videos for quite a while and then all of a sudden in the middle of it she had this one video that she's since taken down but i downloaded it before she took it down and she just had this like real honest moment where she was like i wanted to get on here and do this really positive video and tell you how amazing this was. And I wanted to encourage you all because it's like a morality to them. They think they're doing good by encouraging people to yes, do this. Right. They really do believe that. And so, but she got on and she was like, I just got to tell you, this is horrible. And I'm just having, the, you know, I've had all these problems. She'd had many, many corrective surgeries and all these things. She just had this really honest moment where she wished she'd never done it. Yeah. She was like, I wish I'd never taken that first shot. And then after that, she went right back to making all these positive videos. And she's since taken this one down. She's like, oh, I was just having a bad day. Yeah. Like, no, you were really honest for once. Yeah. There's another one that um, this is one that people just flock to because this was a man that transitioned to a woman. This one in particular for a long time was making all these videos about how wonderful this was and all that, you know, but then you could see him really struggling with it. And eventually he started saying, well, maybe I'm non-binary and just waffling back and forth. And this is like the epitome of the person that really has it all together and has the, um, that is the the big success story, but you can see the struggle and the uncertainty. Mm. So anyway, I had, you know, when I started this and I was seeing these things on YouTube and seeing these, these stories on the internet of how people's lives had been changed and how happy they were. And then I, I, I showed up at a support group in Tulsa. I couldn't believe there was one in my own town that I was living in. Right. And uh, I went and the first day there was uh, just a handful. I think there were about 10 people. They were all trans. There were no like other supporters or, you know, family members. It was just trans people. And within five minutes, they're like, oh, you are definitely transgender. It's like, I knew it, you know. <laughs> yeah, more validation, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, I was worried that I would never look like a man. And I remember the leader that was also a girl that was living as a man. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. After a year or so of taking hormones, no one will ever know you were a girl. And that's like what I'd wanted to hear all my life. It's like, yes, finally, all this pain will go away. 
finally everything I've ever wanted and I can really become a man. People now will say that I was never really transgender because, you know, they want to invalidate my story, but it's like, I was so committed. I wasn't even openly transgender. Like once I really bought into the lie that night, I wanted to completely erase the existence of Laura and I didn't want anyone to know. So I started down the path as, you know, as hardcore as I could. Mm. There was a requirement to go to um, a licensed therapist before I could begin the hormones in the, I was just mindlessly answering the questions. I really wasn't, yeah. I had no, um, you just wanted to get through yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. No mm. desire for therapy, no desire for counseling. I didn't think I needed it. It was like the body's the problem. I just want this diagnosis so I can then take it to the doctor and get the hormones. And in the third session, she put down her notebook. She looked right in my eyes and she said, wow, you really have issues with your mom. And I was stunned. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, how did we get from me talking about um, me being a man to talking about my mother? And I was, I was so angry and bitter toward her at that point. I absolutely hated her. And part of the reason I hated her so much, I kind of skipped over this part, but um, when I was in high school, they'd actually sent me to a group home. Mm. And I was still very, very angry um, at them for that. And I was angry at a lot about a lot of things in childhood. And I just, I did not want to talk about my mother at that point. It was like, I am not here to talk about my mom. And so this therapist, she said, so you're just here to get this diagnosis. I said, yes, that's all I'm here for. It's like, duh, I thought you knew that. Yeah. And she said, okay. And she just gave me what I wanted. It was like, I think she clearly knew Oh, yeah, she struck a nerve. Right. This is where at least part of the problem was. Maybe it it wasn't the entire problem. There was a lot. I mean, I had sewed into this for years. I used to write Mm. stories about me being a boy, you know, so it's not like my mom was entirely to blame or anything. I don't blame her at all. But these early lies that I had believed, I think if this therapist had dug into that and started unpacking some of that, maybe she could have made a major difference. Sure. You know, but anyway, I she just let me go on my way. And so I took this letter to my doctor and he said, is this what you really want? I said, yes, this is really what I want. And he said, okay. And so they gave me my first shot there that day and then um, gave me a prescription to buy him going forward. And uh, I was able to just do it at home by myself. And this is testosterone. Yep. And I was able to inject myself with testosterone. You know, it was a huge dose of it because Women do have a small amount of testosterone that they make naturally, but this is a massive dose of testosterone. In fact, I was going to the gym at the time and the trainer told me that the the guys were going to be really jealous if they found out because guys, these bodybuilders would love to have this testosterone. (laughs) Sure. But, you know, pretty soon my voice started to get lower and um, eventually started growing some facial hair. And it was like, yes, this is all going to be real. And I had my name legally changed. And then I had a job where I was only known as male And it was like, everything was just affirming and validating all of this. And I had a partner now that he was a man living as a woman. So we were both trans. So we really got each other, you know, it was like, we really understood. And we really encouraged each other on this journey. And, you know, the first couple of years, we're just like on cloud nine, you know, this is everything we've ever wanted. And this is amazing. And I remember we were, it was, uh, both of us had sort of cut off childhood and, And this was even in the support groups. The only reason we ever talked about childhood was to talk about how we'd always felt like the opposite sex. You know, we never really talked about the pain and wounds of childhood. Mm. And one other thing I want to say just to to parents, I 
um, the reality is that sometimes kids perceive things that aren't true. And, but to them, like, to me, it was very, very real. I really thought my mom didn't love me and I really had felt really rejected by her, even though I can understand now that she did love me, but there are real wounds that lead to this. Most transgender people I know have been through a lot of rejection, you know, and I had been rejected by all these guys too. So, yeah. But I just, you know, it was like all this was validating all this, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you're in that sort of honeymoon phase yeah. where everything seems to be going swimmingly. Right. So how long did this process go on? Well, the first couple of years, really. And we even had, I remember my partner um, threw me a, a birthday party one year. And it was like a little boy's birthday party with like, you know, a race car cake and things, you know. Wow. It's like you're reliving sure, yeah. all of this. But it's then, the things you missed out on as a, right. as a young girl. Exactly. But what happened was I was wearing these chest binders. Um, It's like a very, very tight, restrictive shirt that binds the breast down. And um, because I didn't want my partner to see me without this, I was wearing it 24-7, even to sleep. The only time I took it off was to shower. And so I didn't realize the damage this was doing. And my back was getting um, extremely stiff and I was really doing damage to my back. I thought, well, the solution is like, I'm not going to stop wearing these. The solution is to go have the chest surgery. I'd planned to have it anyway, but I sort of moved up the timeline and I I literally maxed out every credit card I had. I took out a a surgery loan and I went to San Francisco to have an outpatient double mastectomy. At the time, you know, I thought this was the pinnacle of everything I'd ever wanted. This surgery was going to make me legally male. And they were going to do a little bit of reconstructive surgery to make it look more like a male chest. This was one of the most renowned doctors in the world for this type of surgery. You know, I'd seen the pictures on the internet and I had all these fantasies about um, I was really going to be a man. And so just a few days before my surgery, my aunt had written me an email and she said uh, something to the effect of, Laura, please don't do this. You're you're being deceived by the devil. You are such a beautiful girl. This is straight from the pit of hell. <laughs> don't wow. do this. Wow. And I was so angry with her. I didn't talk to her for a long time. But I have to tell you that it had a profound impact on my life. Because mm-hmm. this was the one woman growing up. She was actually not even a blood relative. I've called her my aunt all my life. Sure. Um, but she was my mom's best friend. And she took care of me a lot when I was little. And she was the one woman in my life that I really knew loved me because I'd never really felt loved by women, but she, I knew that she loved me. And she told me later that she was compelled by the Lord to send this to me. She didn't just think this up. She really knew the Lord wanted her to send this and she knew it might risk the relationship. She knew I was going to get mad at her. But as I was laying there on the operating table and I was looking down at the purple dotted cut lines all over my chest where the doctor was going to cut me open. And I thought, what if she's right? What if I really am in the hands of Satan? What if I wake up in hell, you know, and I was terrified and I almost started to cry. I was waiting on an anesthesiologist to come in and there, this fear started to grip me. I just started for the first time in years, I started to pray and I said, God, I know this wasn't your will for me. And I can't believe I actually admitted that, but you know, I hadn't wanted God in years, but I still, the whole time it was like, I always knew the truth deep down. And I've talked to so many in the LGBT community, those that have come out of it, I'm referring to. Yeah. They said they knew the truth the whole time. And it's like God was working on them and God was pursuing them. And so I actually admitted and I said, God, I know this wasn't your will, but I have to do this. This is who I am. I still didn't understand that no matter 
you know, what I did that I was going to be who God created me to be. I didn't get it. You know, it was like, I, I didn't understand God's creation. The only thing I knew of God was that if, if you wanted to go to heaven, then you would obey all his rules. But if you didn't obey his rules, then you would go to hell. And so I always had that fear a little bit, but I didn't really want to obey God's rules. And so I was always sort of hoping that I could be just good enough, you know. You've described it as um, you were always holding on to an understanding of God. His presence was always apparent to you, or the, the knowledge of him was a reality to you. And you said that you've found confirmation in that with people who have also gone through transition and, and out of transition. But did you ever get to the point where you you were so angry that you just wanted to reject it all, push it all away? I think you'd mentioned that oh, you yeah. tried to be an atheist. What was that like, that sort of drawing you back slowly? Was it through people? Was it just uh, like a consciousness experience? What was sort of the thing that kept saying, no, I still believe this is real? God just kept pursuing me in different ways. And it really, I mean, this was such a supernatural work that, that God was doing. It was like this breadcrumb trail. He was like, for me and just right, drawing me right. little by little little seeds and, yeah yeah and he used other people sometimes like my aunt yeah you know that had written me this uh this letter but um other times it was just god so i hadn't wanted anything to do with god in years but that day i really was afraid um but i had uh dreams sometimes where he would speak to me in my dreams and i remember one time i had this dream that my niece had, and it was a horrible dream. I, she had fallen down the stairs and I saw her like rolling down the stairs and she hit her head and cracked it open and died. And when I woke up, I was terrified. And I thought my, I, it took me about two hours to realize it was a dream. I thought it was real when I first woke up and I was just crying and crying. But when I realized it was a dream, I felt compelled to pray for her. I mean, I hadn't prayed in wow. years. Sure. I didn't want anything to do with God, but I really felt compelled to pray for her. And then two days later, she fell down and just like I had seen in the dream and hit her head. And they took her to the ER. She'd cracked it open, but she lived. Wow. And, you know, it was like, wow, like, I think God revealed that to me. So I would pray for her. Mm. And so that was one of those moments where it was like, God's speaking to me. And I knew the whole time I knew God was real. You know, it's just, I think I was just so angry that I didn't want God. But then there were times that I dreamed about being left behind, like Jesus would come back and I got left behind. Um, there were just all kinds of crazy ways God was talking to me. I had dreams constantly about being exposed. Like I would wake up and I hadn't actually started transition or I would show up and I didn't have pants on or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was one of the primary ways God spoke to me. But my partner was one of the few people I've ever met in the community that were conservative and it was really weird to me because he was willing to stand against the entire culture and he didn't care. They looked at him like a traitor, you know, but um, so we got kind of into politics and I was really intrigued by him because for the first time in my life, I began to wonder what the truth really was. Yeah. You know, I had always just gone by feelings, by what was popular, what made me feel good, but he made me really think about what the truth was. And so we got into politics and I started listening to a lot of talk radio. So I was listening to Christian talk radio for years wow. um, before I gave my life to Christ. And so, of course, my parents don't know any of this. All they see is what the devil wants them to see, that I'm just going deeper and deeper into the lifestyle. So here I was about to have this chest surgery and I'm praying to God. And I said, God, I know this wasn't your will, but I have to do this. And I, I said, please spare my life. 
And I was very genuine. I really just didn't want to go to hell. I didn't really want God, but I was like, please, I was begging the Lord to spare my life. And I think he honored that prayer, just that little admission that I needed him. And I woke up from the surgery. I was so thankful I woke up that I quickly forgot God. I forgot my prayer. And I was just on my merry way. I thought I was just going to ride off into the sunset of freedom, you know, as this new male identity. And I soon, you know, I was able to get my birth certificate changed. And it showed up like I had been born a male and really? had my driver's license changed. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so all the documents I had, all you know, all the legal documents changed over. And I remember um, when I went back to work a few weeks later, I had a, a boss that was a lesbian. So she'd helped me plan the trip. She was very excited you know, but when I came back a few weeks later, one day she got in my face and she said, look, I don't know what's going on with you, but you're moping around here. You're depressed. You're not working as hard. You're unmotivated. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I want the old Jake back. And I was so stunned by it. I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. You didn't notice it yourself. Yeah. And I kind of blew her off. I said, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm still recovering, but I'll be fine. You know, don't worry about it. And I went home that night, though, and I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I thought, what is she seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? Because she had really liked me. I'd been like employee of the month before my surgery. I said, you know, something clearly she's seeing in me. And I finally had to admit that even though I liked the physical result and I was excited about it and I was excited to have all these uh, new documents that validated me, the truth was I really had, had been depressed a lot because I realized that my surgery hadn't made me a man. And so there was this dichotomy of like, I really had everything I've ever wanted. I'm legally male. I have the look that I want. Everybody around me believed it. I had all the affirmation. But the truth didn't align with. Right. And it was depressing because I realized that my surgery hadn't made made me a man. And there was this little bit of doubt beginning to creep in. And it was like, I wonder, you know, but this is only about year two of an almost nine year journey. So, but I just begin to doubt just a little bit. Is this ever going to be real? Mm. Um, because before that, when it wasn't real, it was always like, well, it will be one day after the surgeries, you know, cause I always knew everything I was doing was pretty fake. Right. Um, and I knew I just had this appearance, but I was like, but the more that you transition, you begin to believe it. Yeah. But at, when surgery didn't make it real, then it was like, Whoa, you know, wait a minute. Will it ever and, come? Right. But I had yeah. to push that out of my mind because it was like, well, now I'm in too far, you know? And there was no way, every time I thought about being a girl, there was no way I was going to do that. There was so much pain there, and I didn't even know why. But I think a lot of it, too, um, not just from childhood, but when I was sleeping around with all the guys in high school and in college, guys would talk about women like they were absolute trash. And I was just around these these guys that just used women like sexual objects. And to me, to be a woman was just a horrible thing. It just felt like such a curse. And I felt like I had absolutely no value as a woman. And so there was no way I was going to go back. But there was this fear that was beginning to creep in. And so I finally said, well, you know, this would be real one day. Once I have more surgeries, you know, then it will be real. And so a couple more years had gone by and I was the facial hair started growing in more because it took several years. And I had a new job where I was only known as male And then eventually thought the reason it wasn't real is because I still had all these female organs. I thought once I have all the female organs removed, then it will be real. And so I had all the female organs removed in 2012 and then it still wasn't real. And then I thought, well, what is this going to take? 
And I began to get very, very depressed. And I thought, well, once I have the final general reassignment, then it will be real. And I will just forget about all of this. I can forget that I had ever been a girl. And I started looking at the surgeries and I was devastated because I didn't realize nobody had ever told me how bad these surgeries are. I mean, they really should call them sexual mutilation surgeries. Yeah. I've heard there are so many horror stories out there and they're harder to find now, actually. Um, yeah. I think that I know some hospitals have stopped doing them. Even the, one of the doctors at Johns Hopkins that was kind of the pioneer stopped doing it. Exactly. Yeah. He was the chief psychologist at Johns Hopkins and um, he has written several articles. They had it shut down for many, many years. And this was one of the premier hospitals for this back in the um, 70s, 80s. And uh, but they've since reopened it because of political pressure. Wow. And uh, but he still speaks out ag against it. And uh, there's actually a really good book if you want a lot of that information uh, called When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson. It's a great book. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was beginning to doubt. And I remember the devastation as I realized that this was never going to be real. And I cannot even describe, but I still was so desperate for all this. I was willing to roll the dice and I, I wanted so badly to go through the surgery. And I realized that it was going to cost me over a hundred thousand dollars. And I remember thinking there is no way I'm ever going to have that kind of money. You know, I, I didn't have that kind of job. Um, I couldn't get that kind of credit. I knew that I was never, ever going to have that kind of money. And I was devastated. And I thought if I save all the money I possibly could, I was trying to work it out in my head. I might be able to afford it by the time I'm 60, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I realized at that point that it was not ever going to be real, but I knew that the surgery wasn't going to fix it anyway, but it was like, I was always hoping that if I could get a little closer, you yeah. know, you maybe were on that trajectory, be a little better, right? right. And so I finally decided, well, I'm not going back to being female. So I'm just going to, live life somewhere in between. And I just felt like this freak in between that had no real identity. Um, like, who am I? I remember just the devastation and I was going to a lot of um, sporting events and things. I was trying to fill my life with kind of a lot of entertainment and things. And I was just mm -hmm. so, I was so empty. And, but God had been pursuing me this whole time. And so just nudging me a little bit more and a little bit more you know, a lot of people in the LGBT community, that there's a lot of talk of this word acceptance. Mm -hmm. You've talked a lot about how you were sort of aiming for these almost like goals. You were trying to ascertain or accomplish like an inner peace or a, a feeling for yourself. But what about sort of your peer group around you? Was it was it something like you were looking for acceptance within a particular community? You know, was it with men or women or, you know, was that kind of something at play or was it all sort of an internal struggle for you? Well, it was mostly internal. And here's the, the strange thing that a lot of people don't realize about transgenders. And I wouldn't say this is 100 percent across the board, but many transgenders, I think this is the case that I have seen. Um, we early on for the first year or two, we were heavily involved in the community and we were, I mean, everything was about, you know, going to the support groups and being part of this, but there's this weird thing that begins to happen where the more that you're involved in that community, the more you're reminded that you are trans and you're not yes. actually the opposite sex. Right. And so it was a constant reminder that this wasn't real. And I was always trying to get rid of everything that reminded me of the truth. And that included family. I hated being around my family, whether they said anything about me being trans or not, 
they didn't have to say anything because just being around them reminded me of the truth. I was always yeah. doing everything I could to get rid of that. And one of the reasons that we quit going to the support group meetings is because they were so depressed and they would tell you how glad they were they transitioned and I'm so happy I became trans and all this. But when they just started talking about their life, their life was awful. Yeah. Everything was miserable. Their jobs were miserable. Their family was miserable. I mean, everything was bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. And they always blamed it on the fact that people didn't accept them enough or whatever, but they had all the affirmation they wanted. Most of them had jobs where they were totally affirmed as that sex, you know. It was almost like those things were crying out to them right. that something was wrong. Right. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, seriously, people need to know that they think that if they affirm people enough and that they um, they just make them feel good about this, that they're going to be happy. But the reality is it is an extremely maddening hell to live in this internal world where you're living this constant lie. Everybody around you is telling you it's real, but you know inside how fake this is. And it becomes extremely depressing. And so we finally stopped going to all the community events. We stopped being around anybody that knew the truth. So eventually the only people that knew were my family and my partner. I had cut every other friend out of my life pretty much. Um, and I had friends that were affirming, but eventually I didn't want anyone knowing the truth. And so, so it was almost like you needed an entirely new friend group. Right. Who exactly. only knew you as male and, and, and none of your, you know, your history or... Right. Transition or anything. Yeah. And that's the reason I tell people all the time that affirming transgenders in this trans identity does not work. It is not going to help them. And in fact, studies have shown, and uh, Ryan Anderson talks about this in that book I mentioned. Um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but the suicide rates are almost exactly the same yes. after surgeries. And they've proven right. that these surgeries don't actually help people. And I remember just the devastation of feeling like, what am I going to do? And so my partner and I, um, we actually became very antisocial because we didn't want people knowing the truth. We felt so exposed all the time. Like I, I would be social at work and I would talk to people, but we had almost no friends. Yeah. Uh, we really lived like complete hermits. So the, your partner was biological male. Yes. Transitioned to female. Right. Was he feeling the exact same sort of trajectory that you were on? Sort of that still that internal everything feels fake? You know, we never talked about it, but it was interesting. I knew that he was because he stopped wearing his wig. And then after a while, he stopped wearing the makeup and then he stopped wearing the, the shoes, you know, and eventually he got to where he was wearing pretty androgynous stuff, you know, and I could tell he was just not putting any effort in anymore. And I think what happened with him, though, it was interesting how God works. He had been very estranged from his family for years. And they just didn't want much to do with him. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, literally, his brother that he hadn't talked to in a couple of years showed up on our front porch. And when he reconnected with him, I could see a progression over the next couple of years. It was like he less and less wanted to be female. Um, it was like it brought out the man that he had always been. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of it was that he didn't want to admit he'd made a mistake. We never talked about it. I didn't tell him how I was feeling um, he didn't tell me how he was feeling about it. We always just tried to reaffirm each other. But I look back and I know that he was struggling with it. And he told me later, he admitted that he had become kind of disillusioned with the whole trans life. Yeah. You know, but at the time, I mean, we were just, we're just trying to make each other happy and, you know, trying to drift through life. And but it was like, I remember getting up some days and going, 
like, what is the point of life? There's got to be more than this. I have everything I've ever wanted. I, I have this identity because I'd gotten to the point where it's like, at least everybody else believes it. Like it may never be real, but it's better than being female. Cause I was still at that point. There was still so much pain there. It was like, at least everybody else believes it. So this is, you know, the best life's ever going to get. And this is fine. You know, I had a better job by that point, you know, and I, I had, at least I have a good relationship. So I had all these things, but I just was getting, you know, I was like, there's got to be more than this. So there began to be this hunger and this desperation in me for what is the point of life? Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.